Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to explore the complicated aftermath of the Ummah's latest fitna. Although there was a new Abbasid in charge, he was still surrounded by all the same faces, bringing with them the very tensions which had precipitated the chaos in the first place. On top of that, his predecessor had voided the office of its authority and the treasury of its wealth. There's no two ways about it. This caliph was in for a rough ride. Good thing he felt he was born for the job. Episode 71 Al-Mu'taz Kill or be killed. We already know a great deal about this caliph's backstory, but let's recap for good measure, this time entirely from his perspective. Muhammad al-Mu'taz billah, he who finds his pride and glory in God, was born in the late 840s. Some say the same year his father, Jafar al-Mutawakkil, ascended to the throne. He was only a child of three when the caliph named him as second heir, meant to succeed his brother al-Muntasir, who was ten years his senior. An age difference that large should have sealed the deal for al-Muntasir, but as we learned, there were political complications. Al-Muntasir was closely associated with the Turkish generals, and in the latter part of his reign, al-Mutawakkil began opposing them more decisively. He and his two closest advisers, al-Fatah and Ubaidullah, presented a formidable front against the interests of the military Turks, and al-Mu'taz was their favorite candidate. It went beyond a theoretical preference. Al-Fatah had wed his daughter to al-Mu'taz in 860, and she'd borne him a grandson sired by the prince just weeks before the gruesome night he and the caliph were killed. Al-Mu'taz suffered a precipitous fall from grace after he lost his father and father-in-law. He wasn't even 15 years old, and within a few months he was arrested and tortured until he publicly renounced his position as his brother's heir. The generals responsible for the plot against Al-Mutawakkir, namely Wasif and Little Bugha, felt they couldn't risk any of his other sons ever coming to power. A few months later, the caliph unexpectedly passed away, and some of the troops tried to challenge the Turkish grip on power by rebelling in the name of al-Mu'taz. Although the Abbasids had nothing to do with this attempted coup, al-Mu'taz and al-Mu'ayyad were stripped of all their property and confined to a room in the caliph's palace. They remained under house arrest until al-Musta'in and the old guard fled Samarra for Baghdad, when, in February 865, the brothers were released and proclaimed as caliph and heir by the rebellious camp. Then came a year of fitna, and in January 866, al-Mu'taz, now nearly 20, finally attained his birthright. It's a promising story arc, and one could hope that his bitter experiences at an early age wisened the young prince and prepared him for the ruthlessness of the Abbasid court. 
But just because he'd become caliph didn't mean he was now the supreme power in the land. Since he'd succeeded a puppet, the expectation was that al-Mu'taz would remain within the same bounds set for his predecessor. There was simply no room at the top, and never before in our journey do we find so many personalities vying for official authority at the highest levels. I'm referring here to the generals and secretarial officials in the capital, and practically independent governors elsewhere in the caliphate. None of these men felt any loyalty towards the person of al-Mu'taz, and he had no reason to expect their fealty. They were each going to try and maximize their own advantage, regardless of whether that meant cooperating or competing with one another. This was the rowdy world al-Mu'taz had inherited, and al-Tabari gives us a neat little vignette about the dysfunctional relationships between the state's main institutions in Iraq. It's three declarations in quick succession. The first quoting a contemptuous letter al-Mu'taz wrote deriding the people of Baghdad, who had supported his cousin al-Musta'in during the fitna. His polemic incurred a reply from the governor, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Tahir, who defended the honor of his city's residents and decried the brutality of the Turks. The account ends with a threatening missive from the Turks, insulting the governor and reminding him that they would have happily inflicted far more pain on Baghdad and its citizens were it not for the caliph's munificence. What a pleasant start. And remember, Iraq was the province where the Abbasids had the most control. Things were even worse elsewhere. But anyway, talking about the general dysfunction can only take us so far. Let's ground our discussion by going through the events of this caliph's reign chronologically. It'll be even messier for al-Mu'taz than it was for al-Musta'in. But there's no better way to capture the mayhem of the anarchy in Samarra. Again, the same disclaimers from last time apply. I'm skipping over some major characters who play a big part for a short time, and I'll try to minimize new names and let you know whenever I introduce anyone you should keep in mind. If it wasn't for the mutiny in Samarra, al-Mu'taz would have never become caliph. For a while, though, he and the rebel leaders shared the same goals, the annihilation of Wasif and little Bugha. Al-Mu'taz tried to follow through on that objective shortly after his side's victory, but the generals still had serious pull with the armies. Not only did they thwart the caliph's vendetta, but they also forced him to return them to leadership positions in Samarra. Al-Mu'taz wasn't even allowed to make appointments at his own court, and the Turks chose the treasurer themselves. They picked a man named Al-Iskafi, someone the caliph hated, and the new treasurer went on to reward his masters with reckless abandon. So al-Mu'taz could touch neither the military leadership nor the civil administration. But he knew one group that was as impotent and defenseless as he was, the Abbasids. Mere months after taking office, the caliph felt threatened when he learned about some Turkish bribes going to his half-brother and heir, al-Mu'ayyad. In late June, he had both his half-brothers, al-Mu'ayyad and Talha, arrested and forwarded to Samarra. This was bizarre because Talha had just won the war for al-Mu'taz and had been celebrated for his leadership of the armies in the capital back in March. 
Al-Mu'ayyad and his posse were charged with inciting conflict among the troops by accepting bribes from the Turks, and they received a public lashing in punishment. It's wild that the caliph had to release Al-Mu'ayyad's Turkish hajib because he was too well-connected, but had no problem keeping his half-brother in captivity. Al-Mu'taz then inflicted upon his brother the same horrors he'd endured five years back, and tortured him until he renounced his position as heir. A couple weeks later, the caliph heard rumors that some Turks were planning to break Al-Mu'ayyad out of jail. So he asked one of his generals, Musa ibn Bugha, about them. Musa denied the rumors, and he told the caliph that the troops only cared for Talha, and he cautioned al-Mu'taz that Talha's mistreatment could lead to disobedience from the rank and file. In another week or so, the caliph brought the detention of both his half-brothers to an end, albeit in very different ways. The 16-year-old al-Mu'ayyad was killed, and his dead body was displayed at court before being sent to his mother on the back of a donkey. Apparently, al-Mu'ayyad's corpse was shown to prove that he died of natural causes, as it lacked outward signs of abuse. Narrations say he was either strangled with a silk scarf, which I'm pretty sure would leave a mark, or restrained in a bath of ice water until he froze to death. By contrast, Talha was exiled, first to Wasit, then Basra, then Baghdad. He was not the only one banished from the capital. Within a year, the rest of the clan had all been sent away, and Al-Mu'taz became the only Abbasid left in town. Despite his abdication, Al-Musta'in was not spared the royal purge. The state never delivered on its promise to transfer him to the Hijaz, and he was asked to pick somewhere in Iraq where it would be easier to keep an eye on him. His choice was then disregarded, and he was moved to Wasit and put under the watch of a Turk named Ahmed ibn Tulun. It's rumored that ibn Tulun refused secret orders from the caliph to assassinate al-Musta'in, and replied saying he would never harm a member of the Prophet's clan. Ibn Tulun will go on to become a big deal, with a reputation for honor and godliness, so this story may be apocryphal. Anyway, in September, Al-Musta'in was summoned to Samarra, and en route he somehow fatally stumbled into the dagger of a guardsman less priggish than Ibn Tulun. We won't stop for analysis after every set of decisions. This one merits some commentary, though. The caliph's actions reveal how insecure he was about his position, but more critically, that he had learned the wrong lesson from the last five years. If we had to blame the dynasty's collapse on a single issue, it would have to be Abbasid disunity. So long as the clan stood behind a single figure, no group, not even the indispensable Turks, could strip that man of his primacy. Even though al-Mutawakkil had been installed by a council of administrators far more practiced at wielding power in 847, he managed to rule them more or less effectively for over a dozen years. It wasn't until al-Muntasir's ambition turned him against his father in 861 that Pandora's box creaked open. Al-Mu'taz may have thought that the safest option was for him to eliminate all potential rivals, but going after his kin in this manner only amplified the problem. 
Instead of making himself irreplaceable, he ended up further fragmenting Abbasid unity. Alright, enough with the family drama. Let's move on to some of the pressing matters facing the state. Without a doubt, the two biggest problems were infighting among the troops, now worse than ever, and the caliphate's finances. Al-Tabari says the state needed 200 million dinar a year to fully fund its military, but that its total annual revenue was only 100 million. We shouldn't take these numbers literally. The account gives no details, has no attribution, and uses suspiciously round figures. Despite these obvious flaws, it is still a helpful impression of the scale of the caliphate's dire fiscal position. Our discussion today will mostly take place in Iraq, but in order to understand why the finances were so unbalanced, we'll need to take a little peek outside the capital province. Historically, the Abbasid Caliphate derived most of its revenue from Iraq, followed closely by Khurasan, then Egypt and Greater Syria in distant third and fourth place. While Iraq had been ravaged by civil war, and the fallout from the defeat against the Byzantines had spread to Mesopotamia in its north. The Karajite rebellion, sparked by the arrest of a tribal chief's son in 866, would rage on for 30 years. The region's tribes allied with the Kurds to deny the Abbasids any control over the area. While the Caliphate still managed to collect taxes for a few more years, they were far less than before. Similar problems were brewing in the south, but they were still a couple years away from exploding. And the heartlands of Iraq had been destroyed during the Fitna. Khurasan was imploding as several powerful factions rivaled the Tahirids for control over the province, greatly reducing the revenue it sent west to Iraq. Egypt was still sending its taxes, but these were intercepted by a mutinous governor in Palestine. Isa ibn Shaykh al-Shaybani had no ties to any of the armies who ruled the roost in Samarra. His men, kin from his Mesopotamian tribe and their allies, were fiercely loyal, so he could afford to act with impunity. His raiding of caravans meant for the hated caliphate made him popular in the region, and his movement had enough local support to repel successive Abbasid attempts at dislodging him. This Shaybani thus single-handedly held up almost all the revenue the caliphate could expect from the West. Combine this disastrous picture with the army's unreasonable expectations, and the intractable scale of the problem quickly becomes clear. Remember, Al-Muntasir had awarded the troops a ten-month bonus. Then Al-Musta'in gave them another five and allowed thousands of their kin to be added to the payroll as well. They even tried to award themselves another 10-month bonus after they sparked the fitna by pledging to Al-Mu'taz, but there was only enough in the treasury for two. Between their bonuses and their salaries, the troops had basically emptied out the treasury by this point. At 100% efficiency, only a fraction of the men would get paid. But of course, we have to factor in waste and corruption too. Al-Iskafi, the new treasurer, neglected the Maghariba and prioritized the Turks, which led to violence between the armies. 
The North Africans came out on top because they were more united than their opponents. They only feuded with Bay Quebec's forces. And the fighting between the two resembles that of a gang war, with members of either side losing their lives in sporadic clashes in the streets of Samarra. It was this bit of friction which gave Al-Mu'taz the opening he needed to exert some control over his administration. Taking advantage of the Maghariba's temporary supremacy, he fired his hated treasurer Al-Iskafi and replaced him with his own secretary and childhood tutor, Ahmad ibn Israel. The new vizier proved to be surprisingly proficient, and his meticulous management of the treasury earned him the ire of the Turks, from whom he was retaking control. They were not united enough to move against him, though. It's difficult to give an accurate impression of the many factions within their ranks, but roughly speaking, there were three main camps. Big Bugha's soldiers were loyal to his two sons, Musa and Muhammad, who had by now built strong ties with the Abbasid Talha. Little Bugha and Wasif usually acted in concert, but sometimes drifted apart out of necessity. Finally, the Turks from the rebel side weren't exactly united. Baikabak probably commanded the loyalty of the biggest chunk. But Sima did pretty well too. Sometimes he aligned himself with the old guard, and at others with Baikabak. There were plenty of lesser figures, men like Belkajor, Muzahim ibn Khaqan, ibn Tulun, and Abul Saj Daywadad ibn Daywadasht. Although the last two would go on to form their own dynasties, you don't need to remember any of these names or alliances for now. Just note how multipolar the situation had become. What was originally an orderly hierarchical chain of command had decayed into a volatile web of ever-shifting rivalries. The caliph's election of his own vizier was perhaps not the first time he had capitalized on Turkish disunity to further his own interests. It was only possible for him to banish Talha because the latter's association with Musa ibn Bugha made him seem like a competitor in the eyes of other Turkish leaders. Even his arrest of his heir and half-brother al-Mu'ayyad was billed as punishment for trying to make common cause with some Turks, which of course pleased other Turks. So, about a year into his reign, it seems like al-Mu'ayyad had attained an understanding of the levers of power available to him. With the capable Ibn Israel by his side, the caliph returned to his first priority, the destruction of Wasif and little Bugha. There wasn't much he could do to move against them openly. Al-Mu'taz simply had to bide his time until an opportunity presented itself. Then, in October of 867, one of his problems took out the other. I don't mean to imply a war between Wasif and Little Bugha. The two were actually closer than ever, and planned to wed their children in order to formalize their alliance and dominate Turkish politics once more. What happened in October was a riot in Samarra, where their troops demanded the payment of four months of arrears. For once, the caliph's perceived impotence played to his advantage. The troops protested to the generals and not the caliph. They wouldn't even buy the excuse that it was al-Mu'taz or his vizier that were holding up the money. 
They understood power to be in the hands of their masters. And so Wasif, little Bora, and Sima found themselves surrounded by a horde of impoverished and angry soldiers. Wasif's immediate response to hearing their demands was to claim poverty. He said he could only offer them dirt, as he had no gold or silver to give. Little Bora tried calming the situation down, then told them he would go speak to the caliph right away and got out of there. A short while later, Sima said he was going to go help Bora, and so Wasif was left on his own. I don't know what he said, or if it was even his fault, but the mob tore him apart in outrage, and just like that, one of the most powerful men of his generation was no more. We are told Al-Mu'taz invested little Bura with all of Wasif's responsibilities, but the caliph likely had little choice in the matter. A few weeks later, another significant figure passed away, the governor of Baghdad, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Tahir. He had done well during his tenure, but his last few years were a little rough. Despite the terms of the peace, Muhammad was never granted control of any state revenue, so Iraq's largest city had continued to decline after the fitna as it was starved of the resources it needed to recover. His successor could expect even less help going forward, and Baghdad would have to somehow become self-reliant if it were to survive, as Samarra couldn't care less. Let's take a break from all this killing and dying to talk about a couple policy changes made by the caliph. One thing none of the other influential parties cared about was the Qadi al-Qudat, or Chief Justice. Al-Mu'taz was happy to fill the void in authority by asserting his own, and he picked a man who persecuted, quote-unquote, bad Muslims. I see it as an attempt to return to his father's stringent and overzealous conservatism, possibly meant to allude to the restoration of Abbasid authority. Maybe I'm wrong to take a Machiavellian lens, and Al-Mu'taz simply shared his father's narrow-minded views, but we don't know enough about him to make that assertion. In any case, his persecution of Mu'tazilites, other creeds, and of course Hashemites and Shia, was a reversal of the tolerance his two predecessors had shown. He had numerous Hashemites forwarded to Samarra so they could be kept under close supervision. And when the 10th Imam of his time, Ali al-Hadi, passed away in 868, narrations alleging foul play point their fingers at the caliph. While we find claims of Abbasid involvement in the death of literally every Imam since Jafar al-Sadiq, the prejudiced attitude of al-Mu'taz certainly lends some credence to accusations against him. Even our policy discussion ended with death and murder. But I suppose these are unavoidable topics today. Let's embrace the theme and discuss 868's highest profile victim, Little Bura. While Wasif's end had come about without the caliph's involvement, Al-Mu'taz can actually take credit for Little Bura's death, or at least partial credit. See, Little Bura was still very powerful and the caliph couldn't just order his dismissal, arrest, or execution. The last surviving member of the old guard busied himself that year with arrangements for his daughter's wedding to Saleh ibn Wasif, which took place in November of 868. 
That's the only dated event we have mentioned around the following reports, so we can assume they took place in late 868 as well. One drunken night, little Bura had a falling out with Baikabak. Although we're not told what happened, it must have been quite serious, because the latter took a bunch of his men and went into hiding. At the same time, we hear that little Bura was attempting to get the caliph to move to Baghdad. And while the details are sketchy here as well, there are vague whispers of a plot against Al-Mu'taz. So, when little Bura heard that the caliph had gone with his vizier and an entourage of 500 men to see by Quebec in hiding, he worried that the two parties were in cahoots and trying to eliminate him. He was probably right but his reaction was the weirdest thing about this whole jumbled story. Little Bura raided the treasury for a bunch of money, then rounded up a few hundred men and went into hiding in the deserts of Iraq. His disappearance alarmed the caliph, who began to sleep in his battle gear, and he assigned guards and spies to keep watch for an imminent attack which could happen at any moment. But the attack never came, and it was only a week or so before little Bura's men began to grumble about their situation. Desert winters can be quite harsh. In his haste to disappear, the general had failed to prepare for a prolonged absence, and the troops were ill-equipped for their environment. Amazingly, little Bura followed his blunder with another. He just vanished like a thief in the night. He took a couple servants, some bags of gold, and tried to go back to Samarra to seek refuge with his son-in-law, Saleh ibn Wasif. He was spotted by some guardsmen who knew that he was wanted by the caliph, and they promptly beheaded him. Al-Mu'taz was so thrilled and relieved at the gruesome sight that he awarded the man who brought him little Bugha's head with 10,000 dinar and a pair of ceremonial robes. Little Bukha's body was put on display in Samarra, and the Magariba desecrated it, then set it on fire. His sons tried to seek refuge in Baghdad, but they were arrested and taken back to Samarra. With Wasif and Little Bukha both gone, it would seem like Al-Mu'taz had accomplished his original goal and finally avenged his father. It feels stingy to deny him that so let's just say he earned the win. I'm sure you'll agree that it was a surprisingly easy triumph, though. And unfortunately for Al-Mu'taz, easy come, easy go. Yes, he'd killed his enemies, but he now had to contend with a new monster, one he had a hand in creating, Saleh ibn Wasif. Even though the caliph could mistreat little Bugha's family, he still couldn't assign Bugha's troops to anyone other than Saleh, as their loyalty wasn't his to command in the first place. Saleh thus became one of the most powerful men in the caliphate, and there was nothing Al-Mu'taz could do about it. Most of the news we find about 869 has to do with the collapse of Tahirid authority in Khurasan, a topic we'll have to dedicate an episode to down the line. For now, we'll keep our focus on the events in Iraq. All the action in the province is attributed to the many Turkish leaders, 
who behaved more assertively than ever before. Saleh and Baykabak, for example, both made appointments without the court's input or approval. Baykabak appointed Ahmed ibn Tulun as governor of Egypt, and Saleh appointed Abu al-Saj Daywadad in charge of the Byzantine frontier. The Tulunid and Sajid dynasties will later derive their names from these commanders. In June 869, Saleh ibn Wasif decided to challenge for more control of the treasury. He showed up at court and accused the three administrators closest to the caliph of having embezzled all the state's wealth. Ahmad ibn Israel's response was so scathing that Saleh literally had a panic attack and passed out. It's a shame it wasn't recorded for us in history. We just know that it started with you treacherous son of a traitor. While I found this hilarious, Saleh's men were not amused, and they drew their weapons, prompting the caliph to retreat to his quarters. They resuscitated their master, and Saleh ordered the three top officials be arrested and dispossessed. These were Ahmed ibn Israel, the treasurer and vizier, Isa Abu Nuh, a court secretary, and Hassan ibn Makhlid, secretary to the mother of al-Mu'taz. Al-Mu'taz and the queen mother both pleaded with Saleh to release ibn Israel, who was practically a father figure to the caliph. But Saleh's cruel response was to punch the teeth right out of his mouth, then have him dragged to the dungeon. To add insult to injury, he replaced him as treasurer with al-Iskafi, the man al-Mu'taz was known to detest. The plight of the caliph did not end there. Powerless once again, he was approached by a number of representatives from various military contingents, namely the Maghariba, Faragina, and Ushrusaniya. These soldiers told the caliph that they understood that Saleh ibn Wasif had become a problem, and they offered to take out the troublesome Turk for the low, low price of 50,000 dinar. The caliph just didn't have it, but it's telling that he immediately wrote to his mother asking for the sum, as it hints that the two were offshoring some of the caliphate's wealth so they could use it to reassert control. Well, this was the perfect opportunity. But unfortunately for al-Mu'taz, even his mother rebuffed him. After a few days of harassing him for the money, the troops turned on the caliph. When he refused to grant them an audience, they broke into his private residence and abused him. They forced him to sign his resignation, tortured him for days, made him stand in the sun, and beat him until he died in mid-July of 869. What a violent reign. I'm sort of at a loss for words. Al-Mu'taz never stood a chance to begin with, but he did pretty well, despite mostly making the wrong moves. It's all horribly counterintuitive and feels very through the looking glass to me. I guess it's great that he managed to hire his own vizier at some point, but without any money or authority, what difference did it really make? The caliph's mistreatment of his clan meant that Saleh could easily find a Abbasid ready to ally with him to undo anything al-Mu'taz had managed to achieve. 
He tried, but El Mu'taz was ultimately just another victim of the anarchy. You'll be happy to hear that the churn is nearing its conclusion. And we'll put an end to it together next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.